Welcome to the New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, the New Mind Creator. Today I'll be interviewing Brian Sachetta. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that you'll receive alerts when new episodes are available on Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, please leave me a review on iTunes or Spotify if you like the episode. I know you're into heavy metal and... What is snake brain? Yeah, so um, it's it's interesting. Uh, you may have uh, seen one of the posts on on my blog or heard of it. Uh, you know, we were talking about it earlier. Uh, so the snake brain is the term that I use and my designer uses for the the branding uh, behind the Get Out of Your Head brand. Um, so, like on the cover of my first book, as well as my website, which is getoutofyourhead.com, pretty prominently there, you'll see uh, what we call this snake brain logo. And so it's basically like, it's, it's a mashup of a snarling snake uh, and a brain, or, or it's a a snake that's snarling at you that has sort of like a brain for a head, if you will. Um, And so there was a lot of like symbolism uh, and imagery that we were trying to evoke there, right. In the sense that like, you know, the mind can be a scary place or metaphorically speaking, right. The mind can like coil around you uh, as a snake would. And so we kind of just want to evoke some of those emotions uh, because I think it's relatable, right. A lot of folks can say, Hey, my mind is not my friend. My mind is a scary place. And so in some ways, like the brand uh, and the snake brain itself kind of represents the idea of almost taming the mind, if you will. Who was your greatest influence growing up? Wow, that's a great question. I would say, I I don't know if I had one in particular. Uh, I will say, though, to kind of keep the theme going, um, I was always really into heavy metal and uh, like rock music in general. So there are a lot of bands that were kind of influential in my growing up. And I think, you know, I kind of wanted to embed some of that um, that passion into the brand itself, right? I, I think that a lot of folks will say like, hey, if they deal with anxiety, if they deal with depression, music can be an outlet, right? Especially like hardcore or heavy music, it's kind of this channeling of difficult emotions. And so for me, and you know, as I worked with my designer to create this brand uh, for Get Out of Your Head, it was like, we wanted to infuse some of that passion into it and, and uh, almost, uh, almost make fe- folks feel a little bit at home to be like, hey, you know, I associate metal with like how I channel my angst, my depression, whatever it is. And so when I come and I see this brand, like I see some of that in it. Right. So for me, um, you know, there's a lot of bands that were instrumental in growing up and I looked up to a lot of those uh, bands and, you know, singers and guitarists and stuff like that. So I think that's probably the answer I'll settle on for that one. Um, I remember hearing uh, this man speak. I can't remember who it was, but some years ago he said, out of your pain comes your message. So where was your pain? Where was the pain in your life that caused you to bring forth this message that you're bringing forth? Yeah, it's a great question. I totally agree with that. I talk a decent amount about that in my second book, which came out in November. And for me, it was basically like, you know, going down this journey of as a teenager dealing with anxiety, a little bit of depression, but like, you know, didn't totally understand it or Um, you know, felt like I managed it better. And then once I started to manage my anxiety a little bit better, and I talk about this uh, journey in the books as well, like the depression popped back up almost in like a very surprising way. And so 
um, you know, for me, it went from this journey of like, oh my goodness, I deal with these things. I'm so afraid to talk about them. I'm so afraid to let anybody know that I, you know, deal with anxiety, I deal with depression, whatever it may be to at one point saying like, you know, I'm, I, I definitely didn't want it to be like, oh, you know, your, your pain becomes like your greatest, um, uh, weapon or your greatest strength or something like that. Uh, I didn't want to be that, um, I don't know. I don't, I didn't want to overstate it or embellish it that much, but I do think that it's important to listen to pain. Um, and so for me, eventually I got to the point where I was like, you know, doing a lot of research and seeing that actually a lot of folks across the globe deal with anxiety, deal with depression. And so I eventually got myself to understand on a subconscious level that like, you know, dealing with mental health challenges is fairly normal. Um, and then I went from that like scared place of like, oh, I can't tell anybody about these things. I'm kind of going to take these issues to the grave to being like, okay, this pain is something that other people deal with as well. And so if I can get myself to a place where I feel as though I know how to manage both conditions um, and even some other, you know, uh, mental health battles, OCD, and uh, I, not that I've really dealt too much with PTSD, but that's another common one, right? It's like, I, I said to myself, if I can get myself to that place, then I want to take that pain and use it for good. So that being, you know, writing my blogs, writing my books, sharing that message with other folks, kind of showing them that they're not alone in the battle and giving them strategies for overcoming some of the things that they deal with. How is your, how was your anxiety expressed as a kid when you were a kid? Yeah, I think a lot of different ways. For me, it's mostly like social anxiety, but also just like, you know, significant or important events that are on the calendar, right? So if it's a first date, if it's an important exam that I have to take, a presentation I have to give to a class, um, I talk about in the first book, I had a lot of anxiety when I, I, I wanted to go skydiving. Uh, I wasn't sure if I would bring my, be able to bring myself to do it. Um, and so I was like that, you know, that was another thing that uh, the anxiety was, was really prevalent for, but it was a lot of just different things that um, were social based. And then also, again, just things that were important to me or things that I felt like, you know, where I, there was a legitimate threat, right? It's like, okay, when you're going skydiving, uh, it feels like, you know, potentially something bad could happen. And, you know, then all of a sudden, like our, the evolutionary programming of our brains kicks in and is like, oh my goodness, like, you know, we got to figure out how to avoid this threat because this could potentially kill us. Right. So, um, a lot of different places, but yeah, for me, uh, social was pretty important, definitely around like first dates and dating and things like that. And a lot of those stories are reflective of the content in the, in the first book. Yeah. You mentioned your book, your first book, get out of your head. And you did a volume two, uh, navigating the abyss of depression. Uh, so you're able to help a lot of people and you have a blog as well. So how, when did you know you needed help as a, you know, when you were a young uh, teenager or preteen, when did you know that you needed help with anxiety or who was there something um, major that happened that kind of led you to seek help in some way? Yeah, there were definitely like two triggers or at least like key moments in which I, I kind of had a realization of like, I need to do something about this. Right. And so the first one, well, there's one revolving around anxiety. There's one revolving around depression. And so it was like with the anxiety one, it's uh, actually the first story that I tell in the first book. And it was this, I, I, you know, difficult moment for me at the time, you know, kind of looking back on it. It's like, it's, it was still very a disappointing and stressful moment, but you know, maybe 
in that moment, I was like, this is the worst thing that will ever happen to me. Right. And it's like, looking back on it, it's like, Hey, if, if that is the worst thing that ever happens to me, that that's not so bad. Um, but so it was when I was, uh, I was the first, first or second week in a college, I had met this girl. Uh, we had like hung out a few times and I, you know, we both kind of started to like each other a little bit and she came over one night or she was, you know, about to come over and she texted me and it was like a Friday night or something, Friday or Saturday. And I could just tell, you know, through her text messages that she had been drinking and I hadn't. And so, you know, I have this kind of social anxiety, anxiety around dating. And so all of a sudden, like the, the wheels start turning in my mind. Right. And I was getting super worried, super anxious and fearful. And so she actually ends up coming over and like, you know, she goes to sit down on like the couch next to me and she notices that like my heart is racing and I'm kind of shaking or whatever. And being intoxicated, she, you know, didn't handle herself very well or like, I guess, wasn't very courteous. Right. So she she freaked out. She's like, oh, you know, using a lot of cuss words like what is wrong with you? Like, wh wh why the heck is this happening? Yada, yada, yada. Like you're a freak or whatever. Right. Um, different terms. And so in this moment, I'm like, oh, my goodness, like this girl that I like is like basically you know, condemning me to the depths of hell or something, something like that, you know, some intense imagery or um, verbiage that I used in the moment, but it was a painful moment, right? Because it was like, here I am this, this girl that I thought that, hey, maybe we would date or something like that. And she's really like casting me off uh, right in the moment. And, uh, you know, I woke up the next morning, not only feeling like, hey, I, I think I lost, <laughs> I think I lost that one, um, in terms of like potential relationship, but also just feeling like, you know, this was the second, quote, unquote, uh, panic attack that I had had within the last six months in front of like women on dates. And, you know, that I think when something that powerful or painful kind of like presents itself to you, especially more than once, eventually it's like you have to acknowledge the thing that is sitting right in front of your face. Right. And so that was a very painful morning that I woke up after that event. And I said to myself, like, okay, I don't exactly know what this is, right? Because I'm like, I don't come from a, uh, a background of like psychology or, um, you know, my parents aren't doctors or anything like that. So I didn't exactly know what terms to go look up and like, uh, what books to look for or whatever. This was also 2008. So like, you know, there wasn't as much literature out there or as much literature readily available. Like it was, it, Google was, you know, they were a publicly traded company, but they weren't like the, um, the dominant search player that they are today. So I'm sitting down at my computer, like, I don't even know what to look up, like nervousness, um, you know, heart racing, whatever. And eventually I found some content that kind of helped me um, in the moment, just come up with some new ideas as to how to approach anxiety moving forward. But that was a painful one for me and really set off the entire journey of me being like, hey, I, I can't run away from this thing anymore. I now have to realize that this is something that I'm going to deal with until, or I'm going to continue to experience until I deal with it. Right. And so at that point it was like, you know, talking to doctors, uh, working with a, a therapist. Um, and so it, it's almost like, I don't know if I think everybody kind of has their tipping point or their line in the sand, right. Where they're like, this is intense enough or it's gone on for long enough that I need to do something about it. And for me, it was like, you know, I'm 18 thinking that college is going to be this super fun time with like tons of girls and whatnot. And I'm like, okay, like I just had this horrible experience and the girl that I like, you know, it seems like she wants nothing to do with me ever again. And she just called me every name in the book. It's like, we got to do something about this now. So that was, that was one of those trigger moments for me. How did that experience you know, affect you going forward with future relationships? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it's a great question. It's definitely stuck with me. Um, I think 
you know, I, I, I don't know if I would really call it traumatic personally, like just from my own experience, it was definitely difficult to go through, but you know, there's obviously much harder things that folks face, but at the same time, there's still like, you know, our brains are like association machines, right? So it's like, they're saying subconsciously, okay, you know, I am walking down a path. And the last time I was on a path, like a squirrel ran in front of me, right? So I want to make sure that like another squirrel doesn't jump out in front of me because, uh, you know, squirrels are kind of scary. Maybe they have diseases or something like that, right? So those kinds of moments, like the panic attacks in front of women, those, those moments have definitely stuck with me, like in my subconscious mind, where it's like, okay, I'm about to go hang out with this girl, um, or, you know, a different girl or something like that. And my, it's almost like I have to uh, consciously tell my brain to quiet down. Uh, you know, it's like my amygdala, uh, the fear center of my brain is like in all these situations. It's usually pretty active where like these memories are popping up. You know, there's the, these ideas that uh, come into my conscious uh, awareness of like, oh, you know, what if I have a panic attack? What if I freak out? Whatever. And I have to, you know, methodically apply some of the strategies that I've come up with over time to quiet um, to quiet that mind and, you know, taking it back to what we we're talking about at the beginning with the snake brain. It's like my snake brain is active a lot moving forward in a lot of these situations, but a lot of the strategies that I've uh, developed for myself have helped me make it through some of those difficulties. Um, and those are some of the strategies that I share with readers in my books. The subconscious mind is vitally important to making changes in our lives. Um, people, you know, sometimes may give up when they're trying to make changes because they are able to do certain things for a period of time. Maybe, you know, this is a new year, so we have New Year's resolutions and, you know, I'm going to, you know, eat differently this year. I'm going to do, uh, I'm not going to speak uh, negatively about anyone. And we can do those things for maybe a week, two weeks and so forth. And then we always regress back to the mean if we don't do the work with the subconscious mind, because that's the programming that we're operating off of anyway, because it's impulsive. But the good thing about the subconscious mind is that it is subjective. So we could give it commands subjective commands and create a new story because the old story creates the old things that are hindering our lives in that present moment absolutely yeah and i love the way that you put it like that it's uh so true so how was it growing up where did you grow up yeah i grew up in boston in a suburb just north uh, of the city uh, pretty, you know, pretty nice town had, uh, I I've got two uh, loving and supportive parents. I've got a brother who's about my age. We're fairly similar. Um, so yeah, relatively normal upbringing, which, you know, was kind of interesting in the sense that I, you know, trying to, I'm trying to dig up different ideas in my mind of like, you know, was there trauma when I was a kid, anything like that? And to be honest, I, I can't think of it. I think it's more just possibly, right? It's like maybe it's genetic programming or something where there are folks on, um, you know, one of one of the sides of my family that have dealt with anxiety and depression in the past. So maybe some of it is genetics. Um, but yeah, just trying to overcome some of some of that programming, it can definitely be difficult. It's interesting that two people could be reared in the same home and have two different experiences as well. Because what we interpret what we see and what we experience. 
you know, be, because we have our own, we're our own being and we have certain proclivities. So what we can experience, say, for instance, and this is just an example. So, um, you know, you and your brother w- were raised in the same home and your mom told you one day, said, um, you need to do better in math because you're not doing better. And well, you both need to do better in math. And are both of you hear the same message, but then one of the kids could uh, develop an anxiety about math altogether because they put all of this pressure on themselves just through the way they interpret things. That's why it's important to be able to process um, our feelings that we have and be able to uh, talk to the person, whether it's our parents or whoever else we're having this interaction with. Yeah, for sure. And it's, uh, you you know, kind of touching on like nurture versus nature, right? Where it's like, um, you know, you may have going to what you were talking about where you have two folks or two kids growing up in the same household, right? If, if they're slightly different to begin with, and even if they experience the same things, um, because they're a little bit different, they may interpret or perceive those things differently, have different stories and lessons about those things moving forward. And then I guess the opposite too, right? It's like, there are studies that show that, you know, identical twins reared in the same house, if they experience different things, uh, those, what happens to them is going to affect their lives and their perspectives and how they move forward. And then the, the more extreme version is just the fact that like, you know, two folks, if it's, if it's identical twins and they're separated at birth, then the two of those folks uh, who are reared in completely different places, even though they have the same exact DNA can grow up to be really, really different just based on, you know, their life experiences. So that's kind of the, the nurture aspect. Sure. So what influenced you to become a software developer because this is an interesting uh you know trajectory that your career and life purpose is taking you know helping people with anxiety and depression yeah and it's funny i will definitely answer the question but the funny thing i think right is i'll talk to folks and they'll be like wait you you write about mental health but you're a software developer like how do those two things go together at all how does that make any sense um and you know, on the surface, they, they don't go together that that closely. But um, I think we can take any experience that we have and try to adapt it or relate it to something, right? And I do think the deeper you get, the more that you see that like the human mind is in some ways uh, like a computer, right? So we, we run programs, we execute uh, quote unquote lines of code, like our thoughts are, you know, very much like um, you know, pieces of software that run in, in the same fashion that like on a computer, you can have what's called like an endless loop, right? Uh, so it's basically like a, a block of code or a function that like never leaves, um, I don't know, its own, its own lines of code. It just continues executing forever. And eventually uh, what will happen is sometimes the program that's running it will, will understand that it's stuck in uh, an infi- infinite loop. And then it'll basically send like a message to the system and say like, Hey, we got to kill this process. Otherwise it's just going to drain all the memory and the battery out of the computer. Um, in the same way, like we sometimes have these, uh, I guess what I would call like looping thinking, right? So we, we get ourselves into uh, endless loops of anxiety and stress where we hone in on specific things. And we, we really like spin the wheels in our minds over specific ideas and never let them go. Or at the very least we do for a really long time until something, you know, uh, the equivalent of that system message that says like, Hey, we've been doing this for way too long. We got to shut the program down. Um, I guess the, the bodily equivalent of that might be like, you know, us being super fatigued and saying like, 
realizing, wow, I, I just thought about this stressful thing for like an hour in a row and I made myself feel really awful. So I'm, I'm going to send the message, you know, to my subconscious mind or to my conscious mind, like we got to stop this execution right away. So, um, I mean, I could go for a long time on some of the, I don't know, more nuanced similarities between mental health and uh, computer programming. But, you know, what got me into software was kind of just like the fact that I felt as though I was a creative person or I liked creating things. And so I saw, you know, kind of in college, like the intersection of uh, development and design and the ability to build things. Like I, I have always enjoyed just putting things together, whether it's like, you know, taking the Legos out and building like a baseball stadium or something like that. I saw the ability to do that uh, in software development in computer science. And I went, I actually went through a business program. Uh, I, I studied at Boston college and they have like a computer science track. So it was cool. Cause they like, have you take all the business courses, right? So you're taking accounting, you're taking finance, you're taking marketing, but then you can also take uh, a bunch of computer science classes if that's, you know, your concentration, so to speak. And so I'm taking all these different courses and it's nice because you get to sample them. Right. And I felt as though every single one that I took, whether it was accounting or finance or marketing or whatever, it was like, it didn't help me scratch the itch of like, I want to build things. Like I have these ideas in my, like almost in my physiology that like they need to come out of me. Right. And so that was another uh, reason why, I found writing interesting too, was because it's like, it's a way to, uh, I don't know, this is a, <laughs> I'll use a word that a lot of the kids are using these days, whether it's right or not, but it's like a way to like manifest different ideas that are flowing through you, right? Um, make them real. So it's like, I, I'm, I've always found myself creative and those were good outlets for me uh, to be able to like put those ideas onto paper, put them in, in a software program, a mobile app, something like that. Our minds can be, I, I get the analogy of being like a computer, you know, we download things on our hard drive and it's like an endless loop and just over and over. We experience the same thing over and over again until we do something to change it. I remember in undergrad, I had such a difficult time passing a class that I needed to pass. And it's uh, this particular one, human anatomy and physiology. Oh my goodness, I had to pass that class, right? So the only way I could pass that class was I had to memorize the muscles in the human body, all of the bones, all of the function. I literally had to memorize them because that's literally the only way I could, because I just, my mind couldn't get it, you know, the functioning. So I did that. And the whole weekend, I spent hours upon hours just saying words, rehearsing words, and I fell asleep. And when I woke up, I heard myself saying the words that I was speaking when I was, you know, awake studying. Oh, man. Yeah. And that's the same way our lives go. The same things we constantly rehearsing in our minds is being downloaded into our system. So like if we are constantly calling ourselves a failure, that's being downloaded into our hard drives, like that endless loop you're saying. We call, we say to ourselves, I'll never get better. We say to ourselves, Oh, well, they did it, but I can never do that. We lack confidence. And all of those things we're saying to ourselves, unawares how it's really affecting us, 
We're speaking our destiny. We're speaking the future to ourselves. Nobody else could hear it, but we're speaking it to ourselves and we're sealing our fate because we're not aware of what it's doing to us. So now we can become enlightened and say, hold on, I can do something different. I can change my life by saying something different. So how do I do that? I have to disrupt what's going on. And when you disrupt the status quo, it will definitely create some chaos within you because you could be fearful. What if this doesn't work? Oh, I did it. I don't think it's working. And you go back and forth, back and forth. But you have to commit to whatever you're doing and see it through. But we are constantly doing it to ourselves. Most definitely. There's a lot of interesting things to touch on there. One, one that I can definitely relate to real quick was uh, you were talking about anatomy and physiology and needing to remember things. Yeah. I, I, I had to take a class like that in high school and, you know, I found myself creating these like acronyms that didn't even really make sense, but you're like, um, I forget what the right word for it is. Right. But if you say like, uh, there's a similar concept with like guitar where you try to remember what the names of the strings are. So it's like, um, I forget what the, it's like E G B D something like that. Right. So you put a different word in the place of uh, the letter and then you try to associate back. So you, I think the one with guitar, like the six strings is like eat a darn good breakfast every day. Um, and then, so you can take the first letter and you can say, okay, uh, you know, you could do the mapping. Right. I remember myself doing that for, you know, remembering like the, uh, the different parts of the colon. Right. And whatnot. And it's like, very quickly, you kind of find yourself saying like, if this is what I have to do to remember these things, then maybe this isn't like my passion, right? And maybe maybe I should pursue a, a different avenue. So, um, but yeah, I guess the other thing about high school too, that you kind of touch, well, for me, right? This is the association that I made was, you were saying like, you know, we can, we can download different ideas. We can speak different things, um, not only into an existence, but into our subconscious minds and kind of rewrite our programming. That's what, that was one of the things I slightly touched upon in, in my first book was saying like, you know, we go to school for 12 years, maybe 16 years, depending on, you know, if you go to college or high school, whatever it is. And obviously uh, we're not going to solve um, education on, on this podcast. And there's so many different levels and layers to it. And I, I wouldn't even know where to begin, but I do wish that there was some, even just small elective or something like that in high school or in college or whatever, where like we taught kids, you know, the power of their thoughts, the power of their mind and how, you know, when you think certain things, you, you feel a particular way. And, and that like, you know, brute forcing your way through, uh, difficult emotions isn't necessarily always the best way uh, to move move forward with things. And um, yeah, I know it's a little bit of a tangent, but uh, that when you were talking about like, you know, downloading different ideas, speaking to yourself in different fashions, it's like we are almost tasked with figuring that out on our own in the course of our everyday lives, which is kind of a shame, right? It's like those are really powerful tools that I think we we should equip folks with. Yes, it would be tremendous if we learn that early on, you know, and we could escape some of the things that we do to ourselves internally. You know, I didn't really get that. I heard it. But, you know, we have to constantly hear something over and over again before we actually understand it. We think we understand something the first time we hear it, but it's different after we've heard it for nine times or 10 times. You get a different view of things. So we have to labor in order to 
get our understanding where it needs to be. But I didn't really understand it until I heard this rapper, and I've told this story before, named KRS-One. And he does lectures now. He's been doing it for years. But he was talking to uh, a group of college students, and he held up a can, and he said, um, say rock star, because that was on the can. And everybody in concert said rock star together. And he said, say it again. And everyone said rock star. And he said, say it again, but only this time, say it to yourself without using your words, your physical words, your physical mouth. And everybody did it. And he said, now with what mouth did you use to say rock star? And with what ears did you use to hear it? Although you said it, and then you heard it with ears that wasn't your physical ears. And it shows the dynamic of the internal world that we're living in, and we're expressing it in the physical realm. Because inside everything that we see in this world, TVs, chairs, you know, everything that was made by man started on the inside as a thought. And then it was expressed in the physical realm. But we have to get it on the inside. And when he said that, I really, it really sold it in for me because the inner world is what's creating everything. And that's why we're in the situation that we're currently in. If we could get away from the blame, this happened, that happened, and just focus on the things that we can change, we can literally change our lives. Just like when we dream, if every, anyone have ever had a dream, you dream, but yet you can see and your eyes are closed. So where's this world, this internal world that we need to begin to do some work? And once we do that work, we can literally change our lives. Yeah, it's, it's definitely fascinating stuff. And I, I guess one thing that I wanted to, I don't know, steer the conversation a little bit uh, in the in the mental health, anxiety, depression realm, right, is like, obviously, there are a lot of external forces that act on us that cause us to feel anxious or depressed. But if if we said like, hey, you know, I got myself into a worried state or I, I gave myself a panic attack last night while sitting in my bedroom, while sitting on my couch, uh, hanging out in my dorm room, right, if if there was no other external force there, and yet we drove ourselves into this revved up, fearful state. It's that same um, invisible, uh, I don't know what the right word is. It's, that, it's the same force that you were talking about, right? Where you, you hear and you say rock star, but it's not out there, right? You, the, I guess the analogy in, in, with this story is like you see the fear or the, the manifestations of your fear you see your worries playing out. You see them internally. And what that's doing to you is that's causing your physiology, into, uh, it's forcing it into this heightened reaction, possibly into a fight or flight state, right? So your, your palms start, start sweating, your heart starts racing. Maybe um, you, know, you, you feel like you're going to throw up or something like that. We can do all of that with our minds. That's crazy, powerful stuff. Yes, exactly. Because there's always a precedent before what actually is manifest, like you um, elocuted that your palms might become sweaty, eyes twitch, heart race, you know, these different physiological things. So you can become 
uh, aware and more consciously aware of those things. But definitely that endless loop that's happening on the inside, it definitely causes us to do certain things and to relive certain experiences um, because of the internal chatter. So you, your book, um, did you always know you wanted to write a book? It's kind of one of those questions that like on some days I would tell you yes. And other days I'd tell you, I don't know. Uh, I, the story that I retell is that, you know, when I had my first big bouts of anxiety or when it kind of really reared its ugly head in college, I said to myself like, okay, let's figure this thing out. And then eventually let's do something with the learnings, right? Whether it's start a blog, write a book, whatever. And there are some days that I'm like, yeah, that's definitely how I phrased it to myself or what I said. And then there's other days where I don't know if it felt more subconscious than that. It was like, oh yeah, I'd like to write a book one day if I come up with the idea for it. And then, you know, it's slowly, uh, I was on the path and eventually it popped into my mind. So I, I don't know exactly when that moment was. And I don't know exactly when I said like, hey, I definitely want to write a book. But I will say, I've always been a big fan. Like I've read a lot of books. I've listened to a lot of audio books. My brother actually wrote a book when uh, I think right after I graduated college. And to me that, you know, cemented some of that, right? Whether, whether the ideas in my mind, the, in my mind, the thoughts in my mind were like really, really concrete yet, or if I was just kind of kicking things around, I don't totally, totally remember. I, you know, it, it also could have been one of those things where in the moment I made the, the declaration of, yeah, we're going to write a book on this. And then I forgot about it. Right. Um, but it was one of those, just that winding path of like life brings you over here and you you know, you, you haven't thought about the book in a while. And then all of a sudden you're back over here and you're like, wow, I got a lot of content or this experience hit me in a certain way that reactivated that part of my soul, if you will, that, you know, kind of rekindled my creativity and said like, Oh, I want to write a book now. So I don't know exactly when that was when I really said like, it's going to happen, but it was kind of always there in the back of my mind. So um, a little bit of an unclear answer on that one, but, but yeah, that was always sort of there. So what, how did your family and friends uh, receive things when you told them, Oh, I've written this book. Yeah, that's a good question. I know that I remember like, because it, you know, as a software developer who hasn't really, done that much in the medical field, it's obviously comes a little bit out of left field. I, I made it a point to be like, okay, you know, before I just like post on Facebook that my book is live, you know, I told uh, my parents, I told my brother, I was like, Hey, this is what I'm working on. You know, do you have any questions? This is what I'm going to talk about. These are some of my experiences. I just wanted to like, you know, be open with it and say like, this is, this is what to expect. And, you know, if, if you have any thoughts or ideas you want to bounce off me, or if you also, cause I, I also like, I'm not at, you know, in high school, I wasn't at home every day talking openly about, you know, anxiety and depression. It was kind of more like I was figuring it out as I was going along. And so, um, you know, I was, my mom was always very close with my struggles. Like she was always there and we would talk about it and whatnot. But besides that, it was kind of a little bit, um, I kept things close to the vest. I think a lot of males do for better or for worse. Um, but yeah, I, I, when I finally got to doing it, I was like, okay, here, here's what the plan is. And, um, you know, my parents are super supportive. My brother's very supportive. Um, they're all like, you know, kind of of the mindset of like, do what you're passionate about, follow, follow what interests you as long as you can do it in a way that like, you know, you're not living out on the streets or something like that. Um, so there was a lot of support there. I think the other thing too, just from a larger perspective or more broader audience 
as I started developing some of the strategies that would eventually go into the book, I kind of like hinted at it with coworkers and friends and would start kind of, you know, if I was grabbing a drink with somebody or at a party, I would drop the idea of the book. And then I'd say like, here's, here's this concept I'm, I'm working on, I'm writing right now. And, you know, some folks would be like, wow, you know, I, I really like that idea. I think that's important. I think that's valuable. What about here's maybe like a slight tweak to it. This is how I experience it. This is how I deal with it. And I, I do remember there was one conversation I had at uh, one of my old jobs where I had a ton of content that I hadn't really, I don't know, I hadn't organized it yet, right? I was kind of like still trying to figure out, is this going to become 50 blog posts, a book, whatever it is. And I, I grabbed a drink with a coworker and they were like, wow, like, have you ever thought about writing a book? Because like, you know, some of the things that you're talking about are really interesting. I think they'd be valuable to people. And so that, that was one of those like conversations that, you know, really cemented the idea a little bit more. And I think as I had more and more conversations, it got easier in the sense that as I opened up, other people opened up to me, right? So it was like me starting and being like kind of nervous that like maybe I'm the only person in my social circle that deals with anxiety, right? And I'm going to look kind of strange uh, to being like, I'm sharing these stories with other folks. And as I'm doing that, either people are being receptive to it or they're, they're actively saying like, hey, this is something that I deal with as, as well. So I think it would be really valuable for you to put your spin on the information uh, and put it out there. I think you could help some folks. So, um, you know, obviously not every single person is always going to um, – not, not everything that we talk about or ideas or passions we have, it's not always going to connect or hit, uh, sit well with the person, like, or at the very least, like they might not be like, Hey, that's the coolest thing ever. Right. But you, you look for those people that support you, the folks that might one day become your raving fans. Right. And you kind of hone in on that and say like, I'm writing for those people. I'm going to put the book out and I'm going to try to help them. And then you just, um, you focus on who you can help. So uh, another long winded one, but yeah, that was kind of the story. So it's important to know, you know, to know we're talking about anxiety, depression, and, you know, we're talking about your journey. But for those who are listening, you know, if they are suffering with anxiety or think they're suffering from a mental health condition, they should seek out professional help, you know, to get that help. And you can have, you know, your mental health professional, you can have, your support group, you can have a team of whatever you really need to overcome and to help with yourself. But as far as from a clinician standpoint, you know, if some people may need medication because they're at a point, you know, that they really feel out of control or whatever for each individual, but they need to seek out their help. But as far as from a practical standpoint, you're going to be dealing with the way you think, the way you feel and identifying certain feelings, which you alluded to earlier, you said you were in therapy as well. Um, but there's a practicality about things that you could help that could help solidify the change within your life as well. Yeah, I, I love the way that you put it. And, um, you know, kind of connecting back to the first book. So the subtitle of the book is a toolkit for living with and overcoming anxiety. And the kind of ethos of that is basically the idea that I'm throwing a lot of different ideas out to the reader, a lot of different strategies that they can implement in their own lives. And the thought is, and, and it's, I mean, it's, it's the truth, right? Is that not every single idea or strategy or tactic is going to resonate and work for resonate with and work for everyone. So my idea with the book was like, Hey, here's a lot of different ideas. Why don't you kind of like a buffet, 
you, you survey everything and then you say, okay, that looks good. I'll take that. That looks good. I'll take that. And then you're building your own anxiety uh, toolkit um, that allows you to say the next time I find myself in a specific situation, you know, maybe I'll breathe in a particular fashion. Maybe I'll think a certain set of thoughts. Maybe I'll evoke some happy memory that's in my past, right? Just taking some of those tools that you've identified out of your toolkit. Um, if we, if we broaden that scope a little bit, um, not just like the strategies that I give, but all the strategies that exist, right? There's so many different healing modalities out there. So it's like going to therapy, getting, um, you know, getting a prescription for medication. If, if, if that is helpful, if you find that helpful, um, you know, maybe, and I'm, I'm just throwing ideas out there. Right. But it's like taking up a yoga or a meditation practice. I know that, um, uh, what's the, Oh yeah. Um, acupuncture, right. A lot of folks are, are into acupuncture or maybe like specific kinds of tea or something like that. So there are all, there are so many different ways that we could potentially, um, I don't know if heal ourselves is the right, right word. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put it, um, the wrong way, but it's like, there are so many different things that we can do to help ourselves. And so we, we, we don't want to cut ourselves off from any of those potential ideas or strategies or, um, you know, ways of moving forward. And so it's like, we just want to go into this process saying, Hey, it's okay that I feel this way. You know, I'm not different. I'm not, um, I'm not strange. I'm not weird for feeling this way. And I'm going to, as the best as, as I can, I'm going to, um, you know, love myself or feel okay about myself and then explore all these different avenues and try to integrate the strategies um, and the tactics that I feel are most helpful for me or, you know, the ones that resonate with me and help me move forward. You talked earlier about uh, men uh, and mental health, I guess, have you, found through your you know your journey that men could possibly minimize mental health yeah i think so you know my writing does because i'm a guy i think my <laughs> stories and i've had folks you know i've had women read my book and be like hey i really like the book but it's it feels like a more of a a book that's tailored towards men just the way you think and the stories you tell and whatnot and so like you know i i i want anybody that might be able to benefit from my reading uh, excuse me from my writings uh, to pick them up and see if they help. Right. Uh, but I do think that it's a little bit more tailored towards men. Um, and I think some of it is, is reflective of the fact that as guys, right, our sort of societal programming says, you know, we don't deal with emotions. We push everything down. We, uh, ignore or deny things, right. We kind of put our heads down and just keep, uh, keep, you know, pounding on or whatever, the, whatever the right way of putting it is. And so I think that for a lot of guys, it's, it's important to be able to like, look at our emotions and not from like, a. it's one of those difficult things, right? Where like the average or I don't know, the, the, the uh, prototypical like macho man, right? Like if we started talking about some of these things about like listening to your feelings, seeing how different things make you feel, you know, letting your emotions guide you a little bit, they'd be like, ah, emotions are for sissies or wusses or whatever. Right. And so, um, that can be a difficult, uh, thing or like that can lead guys to a lot of difficult places because what we find when we suppress our emotions is that they stay inside of us, they get blocked and then they grow. Right. And so what tends to happen is like, you know, a lot of guys will be like, you know, I'm, I'm better than this, or I'm, I'm stronger than this or whatever. And they'll push it down. And it, that will work for like five, 10, 20 years. And then all of a sudden, if, if some other form of healing hasn't occurred during that time, this thing rears its ugly head. And all of a sudden we've got a battle that that's way worse than it needed to be. Right. And so I think for men, like what I'm trying to do with a lot of my books is just make it a little bit more 
I don't know if the right, like normal or okay to talk about, you know, the feelings to make like, you know, it's like dudes are so worried about looking strange, feeling out of place, feeling like they don't, they're not enough. Like they don't add up. Right. And so it's like the, the mental programming or the thoughts that are going on in the average guy's head is like, I can't feel anxiety. I, I can't feel depressed. Like I'm not supposed to feel that way. Like people are going to judge me if I feel that way. I'm going to look like not a man if I feel that way. Right. And I think one of the messages that I've, I've kind of put out there on some other podcasts is like, what, what is more manly to look at something difficult and face it and say, Hey, whatever we need to do. And, you know, not in a glorified way, but like just in a grounded way, say like, okay, this is a difficult thing, anxiety, depression, whatever it may be. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to face it. I'm going to do what I need to do to move past it or to say, you know, deny the fact that it exists, move on, put your head down. And like, it, it almost shows like this sense of fear, right? It's like, well, if you weren't scared of it, why wouldn't you just say like, Hey, how you doing? Like, um, nice to meet you. Or like, Hey, how can we work together sort of thing? Right. And so, you know, my message to guys is just trying to open them up a little bit to some of these feelings that they're feeling, say that it's okay. You're not any less of a man. If you feel this way, uh, if you look at the statistics, like a lot of guys deal with anxiety and depression, we're human, you know? So, um, just trying to normalize some of those things for sure. I certainly agree. You know, me, we, as men, we definitely, uh, sometimes think of it as a sign of weakness, which is not, but like you said, we should be able to face those things that are hindering us and uh, become better, better versions of ourselves. So in your blog, how do you, you know, what is it like? How are you helping people through your blogs? Yeah, the blog is a little bit more random, if you will. So with a book, right, you have however many pages, let's just say 200 where you have this core theme that you're trying to build an argument around. So there's, you, you're a little bit constricted in what you can say, because it's like, you know, if I'm talking about anxiety, and then all of a sudden, I insert a chapter about like, something totally unrelated, then it breaks up the flow, right. But if I instead take that thing that's unrelated, and I build some sort of blog post around it that weaves in a mental health concept, that might be interesting to folks. And that might also shake things up a little bit um, and work well as a standalone, right? So with the blog, it's kind of like I have a little bit more creative freedom. Obviously, it still has to be, um, you know, focused on the mental health realm and how we can help ourselves, whether it's anxiety, depression, PTSD, OCD, something like that, right? Um, but it's, it's more like me having ideas that I think are kind of like one-off things or um, things that I, I don't necessarily have hundreds of pages to write about. So for example, right, some of the things that I've been writing about recently are I've been reading or like um, watching movies or whatever that for better or for worse, or for one reason or another, just like revolving around, uh, you know, creatures or uh, heroes from like Greek mythology. And so I kind of uh, in, I don't know, three or four of the posts that I did recently, I just kind of put my spin on the story of, you know, for example, Sisyphus or the Sirens, uh, from Greek mythology and said, like, obviously, like the uh, Greek lore, it's like all these stories are supposed to tell us something, right? There's supposed to be some deeper lesson. So what I do is I kind of extract the lesson. And then I say, how does this lesson relate to anxiety or depression or something like that, right? So for example, my I think it was my most recent post, um, some folks will be familiar with like the Greek story of um, Odysseus in the sirens. So basically, there's these like creatures 
in Greek mythology called the Sirens. And they're these wretched creatures and they live on this island that's really treacherous. And so if you were to sail toward the island, uh, you would shipwreck because around the island, it's all these big, big rocks that you can't really see. And so the Sirens, they sing this beautiful music. And as you're sailing by, um, it's so beautiful that you are you know, very tempted to just sail right over and hear more of it. The problem is that as soon as you get to the island, um, you know, you, you shipwreck. And so what I wanted to do was I took this idea of like, you know, hearing some sort of temptation and shipwrecking, I connected that to anxiety. So um, one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book, uh, in the blog, is the idea of like how visualization can actually be kind of harmful for us, especially um, for, you know, folks that have kind of anxiety minds that gravitate toward anxiety or when we're in situations where, you know, there's something that we want that exists in the future, but like our fears are really tied up in it. Right. And so uh, the idea of the sirens connecting to mental health or to anxiety is like, so for example, let's say like we have a track meet next week and it's like, we want to come in first place, but we're anxious about this track meet. And so, you know, the societal programming tells us, you know, what you need to do when there's something you want is you need to visualize it. You need to see yourself, you know, at the starting line, running really fast, maybe at the finish line, holding the trophy over your head or whatever it is. And so there's that, that's that visualization aspect. But the problem is like, you know, I think visualization works for some folks, but I think it's really dangerous for, um, you know, folks like us or folks like me who um, deal with anxiety because it's like, as soon as we see what we want, but we're worried about it or we don't know how we'll get it, then that desire gets wrapped up in our fears, uh, wrapped up with our fears. And so what ends up happening is like our subconscious minds keep saying to us, like visualize that event, right? See yourself out there. But what ends up happening, uh, and again, this is, this is more for the, um, the, the folks that deal with anxiety, is we go to see ourselves or think about ourselves you know, at the meet, holding the trophy, whatever it may be, and we feel this fear. And it, what ends up happening is we end up exacerbating the anxiety when we think we're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to say, in seeing myself at the meet, I can convince myself that I'll be less anxious, right? If I can see it in my mind, then I'll know that it's possible and then all the fear will go away. But what ends up happening is we just drive straight into the fear. And so like the sirens, right? It's like the, we've got these temptations in our mind that our subconscious mind is saying like, think about that situation you know, drive into the fears, try to solve them, if you will. And what ends up happening is we take our boats, we hear the music, we turn right, you know, we, we head right toward uh, the island where the sirens live and we shipwreck in the form of feeling more anxious, feeling more fearful, dealing with all these emotions that we don't want to deal with, right? And so the, um, in the story of Odysseus, what he ends up doing is he, he ties him, himself to one of the masts of the ship, um, and he has his whole crew fill their ears with uh, like earwax or beeswax so they can't hear the sirens. So they they sail the ship just as, you know, as was intended. They stay on course. And Odysseus is tied to the mast so he can't do anything about hearing the music. So he gets to enjoy it. But he's not the one steering the ship. So he doesn't get uh, to, you know, send the ship over to the sirens, uh, the island where they live and have them crash. So in the same uh, in the same capacity, right? Uh, like taking this metaphor, we need to give ourselves ways to uh, distract, like we need to distract ourselves from those temptations that the quote unquote sirens uh, send to us. We need to say ahead of events that make us fearful, that make us anxious, 
we need to somehow not listen to that music. We need to turn away from it, right? And then we'll feel le- fear less, excuse me, feel less of the fear, um, not only leading up to it, but in the moment. And I think that's a really important thing where like, you know, uh, I talk about in my first book, it's like, even though panic attacks, panic attacks can arise from out of nowhere, what usually happens is um, if they're, you know, revolving around a specific event, we put ourselves in a heightened state long before that event arrives. And then we get to that event and we're kind of all revved up or we're in fight or flight mode. And then something else happens that kicks us off, uh, you know, really exacerbates that state that we're in. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness, I'm having a panic attack. How did this happen? It's like a lot of the times we prepared ourselves for that experience. So um, yeah, I get long winded on these, but it's because I'm passionate about it. And I, I hope that gives you a little bit of preview of some of the stuff I do on the blog. So. Yes, it does. So I have this saying, a man can't turn from something until he turns to something. So you have to, as you said um, in the story, you know, they put beeswax in their ears so they couldn't hear. So they had to turn from what they were hearing to something else that helped them to continue on their journey in a safe way and not be shipwrecked which is a good thing. Absolutely. And I I heard that. I don't know. I feel like I heard that somewhere else recently. It might've been, I was listening to the, um, the new Will Smith biography on, on a audio book. And I think he might, he might use that same idea. I like that a lot. Yeah. So what is your one to grow on? What valuable piece of information would you like to leave our audience with? Yeah, I'm going to do my best to keep this one short because I do tend to be long-winded. Um, but a lot of the work that I do revolves around uh, this concept of state management. And this is another one of those parallels between computer science and the human mind or mental health, right? So in computer programming, there's the idea of like, um, so again, state management, right? It's like, and there's, there's, another, there's another idea or concept that lives on top of it, which is um, this idea of the state machine. And so we'll get to both of those things. So state management is basically um, the idea that computers are in charge of changing um, the state in which they are in depend, uh, uh, they're, excuse me, they are, uh, they're in charge of changing the state in which they are in or an object that they control is in uh, based upon, you know, uh, different information that comes to them, uh, maybe some user input that they receive an, uh, a data update or something like that. And so this is obviously very abstract, right? But so um, in computer science, right? If we are modeling, if we are writing code that models a specific object, we would, well, we would basically list out all the states in which that object can get into. So if, for example, if we were to say like, you know, let's create a computer program uh, or write the code that uh, represents, let's say a gumball machine, right? So there are a few different states that that gumball machine could be in. It could be in the state where, um, you know, there are gumballs in the machine and there's no quarter in the machine. Uh, there's another state where it's like, there are gumballs in the machine and there is a quarter in the machine. So like, you know, that gumball, um, the machine is getting ready to dispense the gumball. There could be another state where the, uh, the gumball machine is out of gumballs. And so the concept of state management is basically, uh, the notion that, Uh, any object in computer science or the real world or whatever it may be, uh, the way that that thing acts is dependent upon the current state in which it's in. And then on top of that, so if we talk about like uh, what a state machine is, a state machine is basically like the map that outlines all the states or configurations in which a potential object 
could get into or out of, as well as how it acts in all of those different states. So I know that's a lot. And again, I wanted to keep this one somewhat short, but I, um, you know, see how I do with that one. So we take that idea and we apply it to ourselves and we say, we can get into and out of all different sorts of states. And we also can figure out how we, how we navigate ourselves from each of those states to the other, right? So there may be a specific input that gets us from one of those states to the other. So using the gumball example, right? It's like to move from the, um, you know, the state of there being a quarter in the machine and there being gumballs in it uh, to get to the next state, which would basically, let's call it like the gumball dispensed state, or even the, you know, the gumball machine is empty state. Uh, somebody needs to turn the crank on the, on the, uh, on the gumball machine, right? So basically a, a, a computer program is, is writing all this code and saying like, okay, somebody just turned the crank. So we're now going to move from, you know, that state, uh, the state of having the quarter to the state of having dispensed the gumball. So we can take all this high level uh, knowledge and we can say to ourselves, you know, we could even write down all the, all these different concepts or write down the states in, in, uh, in which we play, right? We could say, on a daily basis, I find as though I may be in an anxious state, I may be in a depressed state, I may be in a joyous state, uh, I may be in a helpless state. We could go on and on and on, right? But what we want to do is we basically want to create our own state machine. And we want to say to ourselves, what are the things that I need to do to move from state A to state B, whether that be anxiety, depression, something similar, right? Um, the, the key takeaway being that there is usually some action or set of actions that we can apply to get ourselves from, you know, let's say a less desirable state to a more desirable one. And then I guess the kicker, right? And again, this is this stuff is kind of abstract, but the kicker is that the state in which we are in determines how we see things and it also determines how we act. So for example, right, if we are in a fearful state and somebody walks up to us and says, like, hey, how are you doing today or whatever, it's possible that we may see that person as a manifestation of our fear. We may be like, oh, this person's trying to like rob me or like take my money or something like that when they may be a friendly person. And so to see the world and the things around it and maybe the events that are playing in our lives uh, differently, we need to change our state, right? So it's like, uh, instead of being in that fearful state, maybe we need to get ourselves into, let's say, a friendly state or um, an outgoing state or something like that. So again, this is difficult work and it's also kind of abstract. And I think I lost my, uh, I, lo I lost the contest of being short-winded here, but um, this high level process of saying, uh, writing all the states that we get into and out, out of on a daily basis, figuring out how we get to and from each one, and then leveraging that knowledge to say to ourselves, to have the awareness of like, okay, I find myself in this unresourceful state right now. I have that awareness. I've made that determination. And then we go to our state machine or you know, whatever it is, the, the piece of paper that we wrote all these ideas down on. And we say, that, that's how I'm feeling right now. This is the thing that I said to myself that I need to do in order to go to a more resourceful state, a, a state in which I feel more optimistic or positive or something like that. So um, yeah, I lost, I, again, I said I, I lost the contest of being short-winded, but um, I don't know. I I'm, I'm fascinated by these ideas of, you know, how does, how does computer programming map over to the real world into mental health? And I think it's important just to remember that when you feel, um, you know, when you're in one of those anxious states and you really don't feel well, what's important is to try as best as you can to get to a more resourceful state. And then maybe you'll see things differently. And then all of a sudden, whatever challenges you're facing, they may look differently and you may be more optimistic from the jump. So um, I think it's a very, very powerful strategy to hold. Uh, the only question is like, because it's abstract, do we always know how to put it into practice? So um, 
again, I'll, I'll leave folks with that. Thank you for listening to The New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, The New Mind Creator. This podcast has been sponsored by Abundant Sports and True Serum. Head over to www.mauriceflornoy.com to receive more motivation and insight to help create your new mind.